started. Welcome to the Preacher Podcast. We continue our Easter season series called Resurrection Reality. For this episode, we're going to try covering two texts, one for the Festival of the Ascension and one for the seventh Sunday of Easter. We realize some preachers may observe both of those if you have a special Ascension service, uh, and so there will be something on both of those today. Others, though, may observe one or the other. Probably what happens in, in many places, and this is what I used to do sometimes too, was observing the Ascension on Easter 7. Um, or it could happen vice versa. At any rate, um, we're going to give a discussion of one text for Ascension and another text for the seventh Sunday of Easter. Both of those are indicated in the foundation materials. Uh, our series, this this series is uh, featuring two preachers. You've met them over the last several episodes, Pastor Ben Tomzak from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Pastor John Bergman from Downers Grove, Illinois, and I'm John Mitchell from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. Well, let's jump in to the Festival of the Ascension. John, could we start with you uh, giving us just a few brief comments on the service theme in this worship series? Yes. The uh, Christ's Ascension means he's closer than ever. The Festival of the Ascension is noted to be one of the oldest and most joy-filled celebrations of the Christian Church. However, around 2,000 years ago on that first Ascension Day, I'm not sure words like festival and joy-filled would have been uh, in the hearts and minds of the disciples or coming out of their mouths. To them, it seemed like everything was going wrong. It, it, Jesus was ascending. It seemed like he was going to be farther away than ever before, and that would not be good, looking at their problems and, and honestly looking at their own inadequacies. But the truth about the Ascension is, is that he's closer than ever. Even though they would not see him with their own eyes, nor do we, he's right there in the Word of God. He's right there every time they pray. He's right there as he promised to be with them always, and he promises to be with us. So his Ascension means that he can oversee all things for us and that he is still with us each day, working out all for our good. Hence, it is a festival and it is joy-filled. All right, thank you for setting the scene for us. Uh, ben, could we go to you? Our appointed text for this festival service is the second reading. Could you remind us first of the gospel and the first reading? Yeah, certainly, John. Thanks for this chance, and I hope we can do justice to this major festival that's often treated kind of like a, a minor one. Uh, as we look at the, the gospel lesson, it's Luke, and then we'll get some more Luke in the lesson from Acts. So he gets to tell the ascension twice really focusing on different things and and it's it could be envisioned almost like a farewell scene in a movie or a, the end of a family reunion or some kind of event where you often think of tearful goodbyes or, or you might imagine the disciples like grabbing Jesus feet as he's going up into the air trying to pull him back down but we don't see any of that there's no tearful goodbye it's more of a a teaching goodbye and and really the theme of Luke 24 is joy just joy all over the place. The disciples in the gospel of Luke are joyful because Jesus said everything has been fulfilled. They're joyful because Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. They aren't just taking them at his word now. Like Luther, like Paul, they are just skimming back through everything they've ever heard from Jesus and in Saturday school. And it is just exploding. Their mind is getting blown repeatedly. 
They're joyful because Jesus told them the things that were written specifically again. Now he's not speaking in parables, but about death, resurrection, repentance, and forgiveness. And he says, you get to talk about it. They're joyful because they get to be the witnesses, and they're so excited about that. And it's to all nations. He's opening their minds to a, a mission field I don't think they could have imagined. They're joyful because Jesus promises to send them even more. He promises to send them power. And they're even joyful because they saw him ascend. This is incredible. And we see the result of it. Again, not kind of head down, going back home, wondering what are we supposed to do next, or that that kind of, you know, that sad feeling you get in your gut when you leave a happy place, but they go and it says they stayed continually at the temple praising God. They sought out shepherds to keep learning. They sought out places to do the teaching Jesus had given them, which is all connecting us to our lesson from Ephesians 4. And really what we see, uh, a key word in Ephesians 4 is that until, in, in verse 13, until we reach maturity, and they are striving for that maturity. They're growing into it. They're rejoicing in it. They're bringing other people along in it. In Acts, is where we see Jesus really working on the disciples to get them there. Um, Luke picks up right where he left off. Um, and we see that Jesus doesn't hang back. Uh, he spends 40 days. He's not aloof. He's continually showing himself to the disciples. Uh, perhaps that's explaining how joyful they were uh, in, in the gospel account. And he's giving them convincing proofs. And, and for 40 days, he kind of flagrantly disobeys the old rule about fish and house guests. He, he overstays your welcome. Not three days, it's 40 days. And he's teaching them because he sees they're not quite fully mature. Even with their minds open, they're still asking about the coming of the kingdom. And is this the time when you're going to do this or that? And, and so Jesus just keeps building them up. He's the head of a body and he's, he's giving strength to these muscles and bones and ligaments. All those images we're going to hear in Ephesians because he knows that that until in Ephesians 4, that moment of full maturity of reaching unity in the faith, that's not now it's not when he ascends into heaven it's not a week or a month or a century later it's not when luther's reformation breaks out it's not when the wisconsin synod was formed that until really only comes true when christ comes again as those angels promised you'll see him come as you saw him go and then we will finally be fully mature and that's something to be excited about to be joy filled with as we celebrate the uh, at the reformation as we celebrate the ascension yeah well Let's get into Ephesians 4 then, as we, and I thank you for pointing out those great connections there, Ben. Uh, John, can you get us started on a brief discussion of this text? You know, there's a lot in here, but uh, uh, let's just highlight a few points for preachers. Yes, uh, as you said, there certainly is a lot in here, and we could go into spiritual gifts and all that. I'm sure we'll touch on that, but the again, the Ascension, the Festival of the Ascension is kind of our lens of focus here a little bit, and that'll hopefully guide us. So just picking up on some things, maybe in the first couple of verses, uh, to each of us, each one of us, grace has been given. Of course, God's saving grace is boundless, limitless. But this is talking about the, the special grace where he, he gives us gifts to build up the church, just as he decided. And it's all from him. The verse that really, I think, is very vivid and powerful right off the bat that sticks out, those verse 8, um, having ascended on high, he literally took captivity captive and gave gifts to his men, uh, or gave, gave, excuse me, gave gifts to men or to humans. And, and there's so much in this picture here. Again, literally that's he took captivity captive. Some translations would say he took captives in his train. Uh, but what is this? What's going on? It almost seems to have a picture of a triumph or a triumphal procession. 
And uh, a triumph in Roman times was a huge deal. I believe you had to defeat at least 5,000 enemies and bring to an end a major war. The Senate had to approve it. But then a general would have a triumph through the streets of Rome. It would be a huge thing. You, you'd show sometimes maps or pictures of the, the countries you took captive. Sometimes you'd bring in exotic animals that are from that place. You'd show off things that you, you won, gold and silver. And then at the end of it, this is what they're all waiting for. You'd actually have enemies that you took captive uh, and you'd lead them through the streets until the end of the parade when everyone would cheer and you'd put them to death. And so Caesar did this four times, a little controversial, but he did it four times. He put Vercingetorix, the great Gallic chief, to death at the end of one of his parades and people went nuts. If that's kind of the picture here, we see that the ascended savior by his ascension has taken captive captivity or taken captive everything that would take us captive. What we see in that parade sin and all the effects of sin, and we can certainly unpack that more. We see death, which meshes right into this Easter season. Uh, we see hell. We see the devil. We, we could just imagine all of that. His ascension proves that really the victory is already won. And now that same one who's taken all of that captive and won that victory, of course, in the verses to come, we're going to find out is with us, empowering us to continue to be part of the, the ongoing victory. Uh, just a note on triumphs. We still do a little of that today in our culture. I serve outside the Chicago area six times. The Chicago Bulls had really big parades downtown. Um, it's not like at the end of the last one when they beat the Utah Jazz, they had Carl Malone and John Stockton at the end of the parade and put him to death at the end. You know, we're, we're thankful about that. Things have changed a little, but that vivid picture of triumph just comes across in verse eight. And, and that one stuck out to me. I'll be quiet and let you guys chime in a little bit. That would really raise the stakes if we did that, though, huh? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, ben, I'll let you pick it up there. Uh, things that jump out to you are continuing on in in uh, the other sections of the text. Um, just to maybe summarize what John was saying. Um, here we have maybe a picture of Christ's victory, and then his church living in light of that victory. Is that fair to say? Something like that. Ben, I'll I'll let you comment on that, or or anything John said, or add anything new. Yeah, at the front half of it, there's no doubt about it. And it's kind of crazy coming out of Paul saying, I'm writing in chains about you being one and bearing with one another. So we got kind of that typical Paul, the humility of the theology of the cross. And then, boom, he just explodes with this power. And he quotes Psalm 68, although we could argue how much he quoted and how much he's mm -hmm. interpreting a passage. Martin Franzman talks about that because he makes some tweaks that are interesting. But if you read all of Psalm 68, it's all about a king and power and giving things. And so while I first thought of Roman triumphs, I also thought of it, uh, the extra image. It's almost like we see Jesus as a king, maybe on his coronation, and he's got bags of money, and he's just throwing it out to all the, the cheering people. Um, so, it, you know, that, that largesse, he's got gifts to give. And then what's the gift we're going to see him give? It's the holy ministry, which, you know, maybe that confuses us. We That's, that's not what I... No, it's not the gift I want to give. Oh, great. Thanks, Jesus. Pastors, woohoo, you know, of all the things you could give. But but it's stunning that that's what he does because th that verse you picked out, it's it's an showing us that the ascension is Christ displaying his power. He's showing lordship over absolutely everything, including apparently gravity. And, and so it's a triumph, but not like you said, the way the Romans would do it. You know, there's there's no one being executed at the end. 
Um, it's not him just kind of um, making a run for being a consul or, you know, seizing power as Caesar was trying to do, but it's, it's the Lord of the universe showing that he really does have everything uh, in, in the words of Mick Jagger under his thumb. And, and so this one who's ruling over all things for the church, which is what Paul had said in chapter one is now really going to rule the church again by giving these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers a divinely instituted ministry to bring together all these people who might be a little bit terrified of an ascending Jesus, who might be wondering, what does that mean for me? What is all this power about? The disciples wondered about that power. He says, this power is about protecting you from false teaching. It's about protecting you from the devil. And it's about bringing you more and more closely into my body until finally um, we're we're fully united in, in um, the formula that talks about this healing that, that Paul will go on to talk about in these last verses. It's only begun in this life. It won't be perfect until the life to come. So it's it's that reminder that the church is at best half righteous. Even with an ascended Lord ruling over all things, we are infants and, and he's going to grow us. So the church needs to hear these words that we keep on pastoring. Okay. Thank you. Um, so uh, thinking of preaching this text, um, what do you think about uh, in terms of law, gospel, uh, applications, kind of an overall direction for a sermon, um, things you'd like to share with preachers uh, in that regard? Uh, John, some ideas or what kind of what you're thinking as a direction for a sermon? Sure. Um, yeah, the, these gospel pictures are so vivid and clear. That's uh, going to be fun to get into a little bit, but uh as far as law, sure. I um, I need this picture to remind me how much he is in power and in control. I, my sinful nature thinks that everything depends on me, uh, and I try to live that way. He's done it all. He ascended, he descended, which probably means he, his, his humiliation. He's lived for me perfectly, and I needed him to. And then, of course, I still fail to listen, as I should, to the ascended Jesus. And I, I can often look to all kinds of places elsewhere, and I can be blown about and less mature than I would like to admit. That's kind of towards the end of the text, picking up a, that, that picture, what happens when we don't hear uh, that voice of Jesus speaking to us through through the word. Oh, we hear all kinds of other voices, uh, like a rowboat on the high sea is almost that picture in that verse being tossed back and forth, or Mm -hmm. uh, every deceit and scheming thing. The, the picture there is almost of a someone who's naive being sold something fake by a good salesman. Mm -hmm. And how often I can be sold those things too. So he's in power above all, but but it's his power, it's his triumph alone that I can find my triumph in. And I desperately need him day by day. So maybe a couple of law thoughts that just came to my mind there. Okay. I think those are useful. Uh Ben, anything in that regard? Law, gospel in Ephesians 4, 7 to 16? Yeah, if I mean, and if you think about these images of the, the triumph, the king, you know, giving out gifts, and, and we're going to complain about them. You know, you, it, the thing about who you're complaining against, you're complaining against Jesus who said, I've measured out exactly the gift I want to give you. And since I'm the Lord of the universe, A, I can do whatever I want, as Jesus tells him of his parables. And since I am your Savior who died for you, the things I tend to do are good. So I think we're going to, you know, we hear the conversations in our own congregations. You know, people don't, 
think, you know, doctrinal maturity isn't a sexy thing to sell to people. Uh, unity in doctrine isn't, isn't sexy to sell to people. The, the ministry itself, it's not, wow, exciting. We love all these things. We want, we want different things from Jesus. We want different things for our congregation. And he says, this is the most important thing I can give you as king of the universe, conqueror of death itself, the one who I've gone in every possible direction. I've exhausted all powers. My lofty goal for you is that you would grow up and that you would be protected. Um, and then he says he does it. I have given these gifts. And that's an interesting word in verse seven to each one of us. Grace has been given. It's, you know, and you want to be careful. Is it you know, your, your knee jerk reaction with grace, of course, is forgiveness. But here he's clearly talking about gifts. And yet that's got to be ringing in the back of our ears. The first gift was grace. And, and yet I also have these other gifts all equally undeserved. Um, and that's what he's doing. His victory celebration is not him. You'll go back to your image of the, the bulls, or I can think of three times the Pistons got to have that parade. And, and what are they doing? They're dancing, celebrating, drinking a few beers, popping jerseys, because we won this game, like you said. And Jesus could do all of that. And yet what did he do when he descended into hell? He preached the gospel. Not to free them from hell. It was to declaim, proclaim victory and to assure us, there's no place that I haven't won this war. And now here I am. And so when I give you a gift, whatever it is, and in this case, again, in, in Ephesians, it's got to be a focus on, on the holy ministry. When I've given you this preaching and teaching office, this is the most incredible gift that I could give you. And when you see pastors and teachers, these are gifts from God and, and to long to be one. That is a gift from God. Paul calls it a noble, noble task. So he's he's investing the holy ministry with, with the power of the ascended Lord. And that's not nothing. Mm -hmm. Right. And the uh the gifts that are given are given for the sake of those who receive them, but they're always aimed at the service of the whole body, right? Um, the the growth of the whole body and maturing of the whole body. So gifts given that uh the, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, the apostles, then we see passing along um, for the growth of the whole body. Um, yeah, other angles on uh, Ephesians 5, I, I just, or Ephesians 4, I kind of note just um, kind of thinking back to the other readings and the ascension accounts um, in Luke 24 and in Acts, we have kind of, here's the ascension of Jesus itself, and I love this section, how it spells out, you know, right up to the present day, here's what this means for us. Um, and here is how the ascended Lord is still at work right here among us, caring for his body, um, yet yeah, closer than ever, um, working through those he calls to serve in his kingdom, uh, working through, um, looking at the, the last verses of the Ephesians reading, um, every supporting ligament, uh, each part doing its work, <clears throat> Every single believer is is uh, involved in this. What the ascended Lord is doing uh, in His victorious kingdom. Um, uh, any further thoughts for for preachers on Ephesians four, John? Yeah, I just think that's an excellent thought, John. So right that not only are pastors gifts. So my my message won't just be well. You shall be thankful for me, <laughs> but each one of those people listening to that message today, every every person in your pew, is part of this. And you know why. Why did people follow conquering heroes in the old days? Well, for victory, but then also for benefits also for themselves. That's why people would follow Caesar up into Gaul or wherever. But what does following the ascended Jesus mean to us? Victory is ours, and we are part of something great, the body and mission of Christ. Um, 
And that is true, regardless of the circumstance in her life. That's just as true when the cross is pressing heavy against me. And and those uh, Ephesians would have needed to hear that. Our people need to hear that too, because if we don't always look victorious and triumphant, but we are when we go back to this picture and these promises of our Savior, each and every one of us connected together in this. Great, great. Um, all right. Well, uh, I can testify as um, someone who is now a Utah Jazz fan. Uh, Utah Jazz fans are still not over um, the 1998 NBA Finals and Michael Jordan beating them two years in a row. So, um, I, so I realize how poorly of an illustration. Yeah, how poorly of an illustration <laughs> that was. The Utah Jazz and a Piston fan on this podcast. So, I, <laughs> right. I, I maybe I'll rescind that. <laughs> no, that's okay. It gets the job done. Oh, it you won done. six. You just got to own it. <laughs> that's right. Uh, all right, let's move on then to uh, seventh Sunday of Easter. Um, in case um, we've got preachers out there who are focusing on that or who are doing both, uh, Festival of the Ascension on a Thursday and Easter 7 the following Sunday. Um, taking a look at those readings, we've got some information provided in the Foundation Resources in this Resurrection Reality series. John, could we go back to you to kind of just repeat what we just did, but now with Easter 7, um, a little bit on how this Sunday fits into the worship series? Sure. So in some ways in our minds now, we're almost continuing right on from Ascension and what's going to be happening now as, as they go out uh, in the with the early church. And we're certainly going to pick up on a key story of the early church representing the Ascended Lord but that key story comes in the context of uh, just a violent and awful looking event, which leads into the theme of the day. We will overcome this broken world. You know, no matter where you live, there's always something wrong. That's just what it seems like. There's always just something wrong. There's not something right. Even on the best days of our life, oh, there's always something that could be better. But the truth of that is, of course, sin behind it all and the brokenness of this world doesn't mean that I'm only a little uncomfortable. It means that I have satanic powers attacking the faith that I have and the message that I want to share as well. And so I need encouragement and comfort, just like that early church did, to say that through Christ, uh, who has risen and who has ascended, I will, through him, overcome this broken world and be with him forever. He's going to be with me in the brokenness of this world, and then he's also going to take me to a better world. He's going to take me to heaven with him. Thank you for that. Um, ben, uh, our sermon text is going to be Acts chapter 6, um, but could you just give us a brief rundown of the gospel and the second reading for this Sunday? Sure thing. We get two portions from, from John, one from a gospel, one from a letter. We get uh, the, the middle of John's gospel, chapter 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer, and it it fits with the theme of this section, protect them by the power of your name. Um, Jesus is, is asking for people, his people to be kept safe. And he's asking for that they might be kept maybe one as we are one, which is significant. Everyone grabs this prayer for that unity emphasis and sometimes for, for sometimes nefarious purposes to undermine the doctrine. But Jesus wants them to be one because, as, as John said, there's a world that's breaking apart and this world wants to break the church apart. It wants to break us apart as his believers, it, like a, a shipwreck ship, ship falling apart. And, and God's trying to hold us together. Um, and, and that connects well with other things in gospel of John, like Jesus saying, no one can snatch you out of my hand. Uh, and so now he says, I'm even praying for that. 
And he's doing that in the hearing of his disciples for their benefit, so he can they can know, understand what I'm asking God to do for you, the, the God to whom I told you to pray, and I, I've promised you, whatever you ask, now look at what I'm asking. I'm asking for you to be protected. But he also speaks some reality. I gave them the word, and the world hated them, because the world can see that these believers aren't of this world, as we'll see happen to Stephen in, in Acts. We can't believe it's this bad. You know, this seems so irrational to us, like when those Demons want to kill pigs, but this is what the world does. It, it destroys nice things. It tries to destroy God's things. It, it reminds me so much of the book by Barbara Tuckman, The March of Folly, where people with power go out of their way to do really dumb things and, and cause their own destruction. Well, that's what the world does. And Jesus' prayer isn't what we would expect. Take them out of this. Uh, no, he says, in fact, the opposite. You're, you're not going to be taken out of this world. Just, you're going to get protection. And that protection is from Christ who says, I've sanctified myself. I've set myself apart into death for you so that you can be set apart by God, set apart from this world going mad. And so some undetermined amount of time later, John is writing in his letter to a congregation, and he seems to be starting with his usual themes. It's chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, about faith and love and you know how, how believers will obey God's commands, which aren't burdensome. But then he starts to draw our attention to the world, as Jesus did in the prayer, as Stephen does in, in our Acts lesson, as we see in the papers and the news, and, and we see that when people speak these words of God or try to keep these commands that are so unburdensome, the world doesn't like it. John writes, um, everyone born of God overcomes the world, which implies there's going to be something to be overcome. There's going to be str struggle and, and chaos. There's going to be hardships and troubles. And only in Christ do we see past them to the victory. Exactly what Stephen does. While they're getting ready to drag him out, when they've drug him out, he's just talking about seeing Jesus and, and, and forgiveness and, and entrusting his spirit to God. And John does the same thing because we have the one who came by water and blood. And you'll find commentators kind of discussing those verses. Uh, a number of them point to, you know, Jesus' baptism and death on the cross, kind of his, his entire ministry. No matter what those go to, they end up by saying, here's the God man who did overcome all things with whom we're one. And we need that atoning sacrifice to have hope. There's real victory from a real man who is really God that confirms our victory, even when the stones are killing us. Great. Um, just because you mentioned verse six, uh, there are various interpretations of the water and blood. You do find one of them hidden 686 in the hymnal to uh, there's a hymn based kind of uh, on that text with sacramental connections made throughout that. But, um, uh, but right. The, the overall theme regardless of how you look at that particular verse is, yeah, here is uh, Jesus, the Lord of all, um, and the his complete work is for us, and that really, you know, that affects what we do each and every day, uh, living out our lives in him and for him. Well, let's go uh, then to the sermon text appointed in this series, which is Acts chapter 6. I mean, I, I think uh, the hint is preach on the whole uh, ministry of Stephen there, but that's a lot of verses. I mean, as it is uh, with the, the truncated account of Stephen we've got in the lectionary here, it's still a lot to work with, kind of the very beginning and the very end of Stephen's ministry, but I think we can fill in um, some of what uh, Stephen said uh, and some of the other events in that, uh, that account um, in Acts 6 and 7. Uh, but John, uh, could we start with you just giving us some comments on Stephen, and this account in the context of uh, this Sunday? Yes. 
This reading is almost a, a little picture, a mini picture of the pattern of how it so often goes in God's church on earth. There's blessing and then there's challenge and because we're in a broken world and the blessings and the challenges sometimes seem like they can be probably about five seconds apart and uh, they just get the pattern that repeats. So there were blessings. Uh, Jesus, the followers of Jesus were growing. People were coming to faith. Yay. And then challenge. Okay, now we've got groups in the church who are not maybe quite getting along, who feel that they're not being taken care of. The Hebraic Jews and the Grecian Jews, the widows of them, are they getting their food? And Okay, now we got a challenge uh, with that blessing, because how are we going to minister to them? Well, then we have a blessing again. Seven men full of the spirit and wisdom. So seven people who are going to be doing ministry and a significant ministry here, too. When it's mentioned that the apostles aren't going to wait on tables, that's not a derogatory thing. This is a real ministry for in the body of Christ that's going to have wonderful effects. So what a wonderful blessing this will be. And then challenge again. It doesn't take long before one of those who has appointed Stephen, as he is proclaiming the word, uh, runs headlong into persecution. And this persecution comes and intensifies as he proclaims that clear word. You're right. If we would look at this whole section, there's a sermon kind of within a sermon as he sketches Old Testament history there to show that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that was said before. But blessing and challenge of doing ministry in a broken world, we just see it back and forth in this section until, of course, we get to the, the wonderful, glorious end that I'm sure we'll look at in a little bit more detail. Yeah. Uh, ben, would you like to add on to that or uh, take off from that point? Suggestions for preachers looking at this uh, account of Stephen on this Sunday? In in a lot of churches, I think this time of year, you're getting towards graduations or even confirmation. And so some of those ideas and those people are going to be around. And, and, and exactly what John was talking about, I, I was just overwhelmed by the amount of conflict and drama in the church. You know, whether it's complaining about priorities or work can't get done or then the new pastor comes and he's a real jerk and I don't like the stuff he's saying and then I mean it, but it spirals down into murder and then you get to the end those the verses were assigned 51 to 58 and, and Stephen really drops the hammer in his sermon but we get a real contrast to Acts 2 in Acts 2 it said the people were cut to the heart and said what do we do in Acts 7 it says they were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth and they covered their ears and they screamed and they shouted and they dragged him out and they murdered him. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just mind boggling. But, you know, we have to prepare people for the reality that the word breeds anger and contempt. And before we just make this a sermon about how wicked the world is and be ready to die like Stephen, that anger and contempt is right here in my own heart. I am I have zero eagerness to hear facts that don't align with my thinking. And when the preacher speaks in God's voice, I've got a conflicting voice of God in my head that sounds a lot like my own voice. And so I'm going to cover my ears. I'm gnashing my teeth as I stomp out of church and come tell the pastor and give him a piece of my mind. And, and you know, we can all think of the people who've left our churches because God said something to them and they didn't like it. We're thankful. I haven't heard a lot of stories in America, at least about Wells pastors getting dragged out of church and murdered. But we don't have to go too far in the world to see it can end there. And we don't have to look too far in our life to see how short a fuse it is and how lucky we are that we haven't gone that far. So I, I was I was struck by the intensity of of the, the reaction against the word. And 
And in the, the, the red hymnal, the 93 hymnal, this is paired with 1 Peter. Um, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone he could devour. So, of course, here's the devil. He's just he's using the same playbook, too. They get they conspire in secret. They get people to start spreading rumors. They get false witnesses. And next thing you know, you got a, a quote unquote trial. He's, he's just going to keep running the same place. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, yeah, it, it this text highlights for me the this great paradox of the Christian life that is, um, I think you can see it in the gospel for the day too, as Jesus prays uh, for his disciples to be protected. Um, but most of them were martyred. Um, and uh, so what's going on here? Uh, is the prayer unanswered? I don't think it was unanswered at all. I think they were protected, sanctified by the truth, um, and then delivered into the heavenly kingdom at the Father's time. Um, and so we see it with Stephen here. So maybe a, a sermon could explore that paradox a little bit, too, that uh, you've mentioned, you know, the, the sinful nature that um, is resistant, or maybe uh, the sinful nature who says um, uh, this church is worth being a part of only if um, I find fulfillment and success and glory um, but then also you're recognizing that in Stephen, we've got the cross, uh, very heavily laid on him, but also this, uh, he sees the glory that is coming, uh, in just moments, um, at the end of his life. And of course the gospel spreads like nobody's business after Stephen is put to death too. So yeah, the kind of this paradox of the cross and suffering, but the, the growth of the kingdom, just fascinating to, to think about, uh, Ben. And this is a direction I didn't go when I was writing for, for this particular one, but there is something I think to be, if we want to focus on the first six verse or the first nine verses, you said we have so much and we want to run right to Stephen, but the disciples made an intentional choice that caused those problems. They yep. had this social ministry going on that was exploding. They had more work to do to, to take care of the people of Jerusalem they had in their hands. And if they'd have gone that direction, you know what would have happened? Stephen would have been stoned because they would have stopped preaching the word. Mm -hmm. They would have just focused on saving bodies, a good thing, but they identified this is not the task of the apostolic ministry, and we we cannot let that overwhelm us. And so they chose the path that will inevitably lead to the cross, to actually preach the word. No one will ever be offended by me giving you free food, but they will be offended when I talk about Jesus, as we saw happen to Stephen. He tried to preach Jesus to these guys even while they were getting ready to drag him out, and that made them all the angrier. Right, right. Yep. Um, yeah, so we've had some good uh, ideas for law gospel thoughts for this sermon. Um, uh, yeah, any any suggestions for preachers? Kind of, um, yeah, just what you do with a, a direction for a sermon like this. Uh, it, one way you, that I mentioned is you could kind of explore the paradox. Um, I like a structure called, uh, David Schmidt has it, the paradox maintains structure, where you kind of look at each side of it, uh, the cross and the glory, and then see how our sinful nature likes to take each one of those in the opposite direction. Uh, but, you know, where the sermon resolves is saying, no, both of these are, are God's will, and this is what happens when the gospel is proclaimed, um, and this is life for, for us, uh, and picturing what that looks like uh, in, in the present day. Uh, any other suggestions for a direction for, for preachers here? Um, yeah, I, I think, John, just reflecting on that, that sounds uh, like a wise course of action. I mean, one way to go about it is just 
to tell your people. I'm going to tell you a beautiful story today, true story from the book of Acts. And as you'd start to unravel this, people would probably be looking at you like, this is terrible. This is an awful story. And maybe we should take our kids out of church. Now a guy is getting stoned. Like what's going on? But then of course, the end of the story especially makes it beautiful. He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. Jesus sees him filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Lord, uh, receive my spirit. What a beautiful, beautiful prayer there at the end. And in many ways, that's our story too. Yeah, I don't know that if I'm going to get stoned to death. I mean, my own personal prayer, would Lord, please keep that. But all of our people, as we go through our lives in a broken world, it doesn't look like a beautiful story in the hands of a gracious God. It doesn't feel that way when we're carrying the cross. At times, it looks like just persecution and difficulty. We take one step forward, then there's two other steps back, et cetera. But we know the end of the story. We overcome. We will see Jesus with our very eyes and with our last breath, we can say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Although, of course, I can also say that each and every day too, and I can see Jesus through the word until I, I get to that final day. So uh, it, it's a beautiful story, even living in a broken world because of the story of my risen and ascended Savior. Yeah, thanks for that idea. Uh, ben, any any other suggestions? Yeah, and as as you're looking at, you know, you also see God's incredible love for the unbeliever. Because when we see the reaction of unbelief in this text and then we extrapolate out into the world, it, it seems unbelievable to us that any unbeliever would come to faith, right? Um, they're gnashing, fury, murder, raging against words, against facts. And yet we see one in this crowd who doesn't stay an unbeliever. You wonder if, if this is what Paul was thinking of when he wrote 1 Timothy 1 about blasphemy and murder. Was he just mm -hmm. this day? And, and what we see, God, how he loves the unbeliever is that um, kind of like the hobbits always want second breakfast. Stephen gives second sermon. And it starts with that vision. Because he's not, this isn't just, it is God giving Stephen some things. I think I think that vision was God giving Stephen some proof. You're right, Stephen. Your cause is just, and what's happening to you, this is, you're taking up Christ's cross. But he starts by saying, behold. So he's preaching now to these crowds. Look, guys, Jesus. And he's not just trolling them. You know, he's saying, I want you to see the one you, he just told him they killed Jesus. The one you killed lives, and he wants to be your savior. I see him in heaven doing what we say in the creed, sitting at the right hand of the father. So he starts with that because he doesn't want anyone to perish and neither does God. And then he talks about, um, don't hold the sin against them. It's Isaiah 53 coming to life. He's a lamb led to slaughter. We would think we would try to run away and get away from our captors or some kind of plot to, to escape. And he just takes it like, like sheep to the slaughter. And all he says is, Lord, don't hold the sin against them. And it's fascinating. It says that he fell on his knees and cried out. And the Greek says, with a great voice. Again, he wants them to hear that word. He wants them to hear a word of forgiveness. That wasn't a secret word that was just for him. It wasn't just between him and God. It was for them. As they're throwing stones, he's he's showing them God's forgiveness. And then you talked about the glorious end, John. And uh, I'm glad you didn't mention these words so I could. The very last three words of verse 60, right? He fell asleep. So now we learn the big bomb. That's the big bomb of the whole text. That whatever happens, whatever uh, cross we carry, whatever death we die, in Jesus it's sleep. And that's, and it got through Paul, and it got through us, because Christ had to come to us, and we were enemies, and he baptized us. 
so that now we, like Stephen, fall asleep. Even if it's not because of stones chucked at our heads, it might be in our beds, it might be after 85 years, but it might be after a life where everything in our life fell apart, our kids denied the faith, our church uh, drifted from the truth, but we still fall asleep in Jesus. And it's simple stuff. Um, for my confirmands, I would point out that this sermon is stuff every Sunday school kid knows. Those are all Sunday school and Bible history stories from, you know, Word of God class. And Stephen used that to say, Jesus is the righteous one. And he gave up his spirit for us, and now we can give our spirits into him. Yeah. Yeah, our, our theme for the series, Resurrection Reality, and don't those last words uh, just speak to that. Resurrection Reality in a Broken World is uh, because the Savior lives and rules. Um, yeah, even this horrible uh end that Stephen comes to is he he falls asleep in Jesus um and uh and that is the reality the power of death is is taken away by the living savior uh final thoughts anything we we neglected to mention all right if not then uh we'll turn this over to our, our preachers to get to uh get to work on preaching the ascended lord and all the gifts that he continues to give and the ways he continues to work in his church. The reality of the resurrection is reality we rejoice in each day.